Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I am Director of ECFR. And this week's podcast is going to be about our favourite topic of world order. We have a very special guest this week, Aisha Zarakol, who is Professor of International Relations at the University of Cambridge and has written a wonderful book which uh, came out last year called Before the West, The Rise and Fall of Eastern World Order. Aisha has published prolifically on world order and her work's been, I think, very important in conceptualizing some of the problems of legitimacy which this order has both in emerging uh, countries as well as in the dissatisfied groups within uh, the West um, that have been rebelling in recent years. But I think what's particularly interesting about this new book is that it takes us a long way um, out of our comfort zone and comes up with quite different ways of conceptualizing world order. Um, and by using history of the pre-Western world, I think she she raises some very interesting questions about how we think about order uh, in the West, but also how we think about what orders might follow the post-Cold War order that many people agree um, seems to be uh, under some pressure at the moment. So thank you very much for, for joining, Aisha. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So um, we're going to go into world order pretty uh, quickly, but Aisha's just come back from voting in the Turkish election. So um, I thought it might be good just to touch on that very briefly before we go into conceptual questions. Were you surprised by the result of uh, of the first round, Aisha? A bit, yes, because most of the polls indicated that the opposition uh, had a lead uh, and the results now show Erdogan was very close to winning in the first round. And what do you think that that means that he's got a better chance of winning in the second round? Yes, uh, definitely. Um, I mean, he has the incumbent advantages and uh, the the third candidate vote is more likely to go to him because uh, that's the ultra-nationalist protest vote. Yeah. Uh, and also, of course, he has the, you know, all the resources that he had for the first election, the resources of the state, all of the media under his control. And uh, now he's facing a demoralized opposition as opposed to <laughs> uh, the case before, which was like a very, you know, uh, motivated opposition. So what do you think that would mean if, if he does win the elections for Turkish foreign policy? Do you think we're going to see um, more of the same or do you think that this could embolden him? I th- I think it will be more of the same in the sense that, you know, uh, it's not that he, he, he lacks, you know, uh, courage when it comes to, <laughs> to, to foreign policy, um, but he's also always, almost always willing to make deals for the right price. I mean, I don't mean just, you know, uh, material uh, price, but uh, so... I think that's what we will see, you know, a bit unpredictable in terms of, you know, what he will cause conflict over, but also quite willing to make, you know, deals with anyone uh, as needed. Okay. We will, I'm sure, be talking more about the Turkish elections on the podcast um, uh, and uh, maybe with Aisha, but certainly with with other colleagues. But um, the main thing we wanted to talk about today is, is the kind of world order. And you've written this wonderful book before the West, which 
sets out a whole different way of thinking about sovereignty, a pre-Westphalian um, idea, which goes back to, to the Mongol era. You call it the Chinggisid um, sovereignty model. Can you explain a bit more about what it is and, and how it differs from today's world order and why we should why we should be interested in it? Sure. Um, I mean, these days we associate sovereignty with the nation state, you know, territorial uh, nation state that's, you know, centralized, uh, you know, uh, run by <laughs> governments, etc. Uh, and I wanted to argue that, uh, you know, uh, the concept of sovereignty in some ways can travel further back if what we're looking for is not, you know, nations uh, or territoriality, but uh, centralization of uh, authority. Uh, so what I'm call- calling the Chinggisid sovereignty model uh, is um, is this type of sovereignty, all the power, all the authority is centralized in the person of uh, the great Khan, uh, as, you know, the ideal model is Genghis Khan. Um, and people may say what's, you know, unique about that, there are uh, so many kings <laughs> and monarchs in history, but usually there is some kind of authority sharing in many settings. Uh, this tends to be usually with, you know, religious authority, so the king's share some power, for instance, with the church or the ulama or something. But um, what Genghis Khan did is, you know, through his example, uh, installed and popularized this model where uh, the buck <laughs> stopped uh, with him. He was the lawgiver uh, and he was not accountable to anyone, essentially a god on earth in a way. Uh, and uh, this was legitimized by the idea that he was a world conqueror. So what I'm arguing in the book is that uh, places where the sovereignty model uh, were, you know, was in operation, uh, we see also um, you know, political actors chasing world conquest. Uh, so they, they have this expansive universal vision and they end up uh, ordering the world. They end up creating world orders, either by themselves or through interactions with other actors that share the same universal uh, vision. Uh, and that makes this period somewhat comparable to uh, the modern era, because our modern international order is also one that's that has a universalizing vision, uh, even though its you know starting premise is very different. And you've got a very interesting definition of of world order because it seems not to be just tied to who the big powers are, but instead to some of the ways that they legitimize themselves. Can you explain a bit more about that? Because it's quite interesting. Yes. Uh, so you know, I define our order as you know man made rules uh, and understandings. You know uh, that pattern relations. Of course, you know <laughs> relations don't always follow <laughs> the rules, but. You know, at at the at the heart of uh, orders, and I think uh, it's agency. I mean, they don't just accidentally uh, happen. Um, but yes, I'm I'm pointing to these shared understandings, and I think this is what really keeps order together. So it's not so much you know the great power discourse focuses so much on is there conflict, is there not conflict. But uh, you know, one of the I think insights that come from this long Duray history that uh, I uh, detail in the book is that sometimes rivalry itself or conflict itself can be, uh, you know, uh, helpful for <laughs> order making if all the sides are have the same vision of what it means to be powerful or if they have the same 
kind of uh, understanding of politics, uh, so conflict or cooperation. But uh, most important is, uh, do they have the same kind of goals? Are they competing for the same sorts of things? And I think that's very important to uh, how orders are created and maintained. And if you think about our current order at the moment, how would you describe that? Yeah, I think there is there is a degree of shared understanding. I mean, I, I discussed this in the book as well. Uh, so people say China's rise; it's it's the end of <laughs> uh, international order, um, and I don't I don't think that's necessarily uh, true. I mean, it may be you know end of one reiteration of the order, but given the fact that China or even Russia, I mean, to some extent, they agree on the basics of <laughs> how to do um, you know, international politics. It's not that different, uh, even though there are like maybe ideological disagreements or you know, different outcomes are desired. They're not challenging the fundamental rules of uh, order. So, uh, so, I mean, that, that, that means you know, if they, you know, these non-Western powers manage to create, uh, you know, their own institutions and rules, there would be a great degree of continuity um, in the order, uh, in a fundamental sense. I mean, in the book, I call that an acumen, like <laughs> agreement on the very like deep norms. Uh, that and that agreement ties successive orders and makes them, um, you know. Uh, I mean, they make, puts them in the same family of things, essentially. But sometimes also what I call accumulate the deep norms under underwriting order. Sometimes those uh, norms are lost as well. That's also possible. But that usually comes, I think, after uh, periods of uh, long periods of uh, crisis and disorder. So I'd be good to talk a bit more about disorder and how orders end because you've got some very interesting things um, to say about that. But before we do that, maybe we could go a bit deeper in the, into the kind of Chinggisid sovereignty model because I think um, you talk about how the, you know the nation state and that and the kind of Westphalian idea links territory and territorial control with sovereignty. I think one of the interesting things about the way that you describe the Chinggisid model is, is both this idea of centralization, which obviously has a lot of contemporary relevance in various different countries, but also this idea you, which you put forward of territorial reach, which I think is very interesting as well, because we're in a sort of era now where you have hyper interdependence and people are kind of interfering in each other's own affairs, which, you know, on the surface seems to undercut some of the ideas of, of, um, of, of, of sovereignty that we've had uh, from the past where states were much more self-contained than they are at the moment. Do you think that there are some, some lessons to be learned from the sort of pre-Westphalian era in terms of thinking about sovereignty now? Yes, uh, I think so. I mean, we tend to take the nation state uh, model for granted. We think, you know, because we're so socialized towards it, <laughs> we think that will never be replaced by, an alternative, but uh, there are good reasons to think, uh, whether technology or um, something else, that our notions of uh, you know space and how we relate to each other, these things will change uh, uh, profoundly in the twenty first century. So, uh, and I mean, of course, this debate has been around uh, since the nineties. Like, is the nation state withering away? But um, now, you know, there. Are, 
better reasons to think uh, that there are serious challenges, you know, the cyberspace and all that. Uh, anyway, I mean, um, and when we think about like what's coming in the future, one way to think about that is to look to the past. So the, the sovereignty model that I'm detailing with this expansive reach, universal empire, you know, that actually, that's an even older idea than the time period I'm looking at. That's an idea that was popular in antiquity, uh, and then it went away, and then it made a comeback, you know, in the uh, in the 13th century with the Mongols from Inner Asia. It spread across Asia and then partly, you know, to Europe, arguably, or at least I argue, via the Habsburgs. Um, yeah, and then, you know, we've replaced that with something else. But there is no reason why this idea of, you know, universal sovereignty uh, cannot come back as our notions of, you know, territory, space, or, you know, uh, what the state is entitled to change uh, in the 21st century. Because one of the interesting features about the world today is that there is a increasingly active conversation about about civilizations and civilization states, which is a kind of post or pre-Westphalian idea, the idea that you have these civilizations that, that can span um, large territories. It's very popular in Russia, in China, in India, in Iran, uh, amongst other places. Um, and your book, when it came out, I, I noticed that you were giving a lot of talks in China and in other places. Um, to what extent are other powers, you know, now that they can see um, some challenges to, to Western hegemony and to the sort of post-Cold War order, looking back to, uh, to some of these other orders and, and taking inspiration from them? Um... I think I, I think there are attempts to look to the past. I mean, they're of course not you know the centralizers of the present, uh, what we call you know strongmen. Um, they're, they're, yeah. Turkey is another very obvious example of a country that's looking to pre Westphalian yes. um, orders, the Ottoman. So I mean, they're not necessarily looking at uh, the history that I've described yeah. because the history I've, de- I've described is uh, you know at least the way I tell it, it's it's story of. Uh, interconnected uh, Asia, yeah. um, and everybody has their own complaints with the Mongols. Anyway, so it's not it's not a history that people want to remember necessarily. But uh, you know, there are attempts to look at you know other pasts, uh, other you know golden ages. You know, uh, you know, um, I think in order to construct you know narratives that may you know, counter the idea of like the West or Western civilization. Whether, I mean, whether those, I mean, those are very much, you know, present day projects and often, you know, rest on dubious use of, (laughs) use of history. But yeah, I mean, I think there there is a desire to articulate, uh, you know, new visions for the future uh, and legitimize those visions by looking at history. I I agree with that bit. And, um, so you you started talking a, a few answers ago about disorder and how kind of what threatens orders, what can cause them to decline. I think that's something which uh, people are very uh, curious about at the moment, as there is a kind of sense of of um, that we might be, uh, well, to use a German phrase, a Zeitenwender, that we might be uh, at a turning point in terms of, uh, of of the global order. Can you talk a bit about how you see um, uh, orders coming and going? Because I think one of the interesting things that you you argue is that 
you know, it's often not, as you said earlier, it's not rivalries between competing powers which destroy orders, but but there are other kind of forces that often see the end of orders. Uh, yes. So, I mean, in the, in the history that I've reconstructed from the 13th century to the 17th century, I mean, what I don't see really is, uh, you know, so, I mean, what, what I'm looking at, of course, as, as I said, are not nation states, but these are, you know, houses or what I call great houses, similar to great powers that are competing with each other to create world empires. Uh, and so there, there isn't really an example of, you know, one defeating the other and then creating a new order. So what we tend to see is, uh, you know, rivalry and then fragmentation and then a completely different, you know, uh, house, but still influenced by the previous houses and their ideas, uh, you know, uh, rising uh, or a number of them rising and, you know, doing the same thing again. So that, that led me to conclude that um, at least for the time period I'm looking at, you know, it's not, uh, it's not about <laughs> orders don't, you know, fall apart because of uh, rivalry. Uh, or by like one side winning um, necessarily. I mean, maybe that happens too, but at least I'm giving some other possibilities, possible scenarios. They they fragment due to what I call structural crises that uh, create disorder. And you name some of these things like climate change, epidemic, demography. Yeah, so climate change, uh, you know, not many people know, but, you know, 17th century was, a you know, a, great period of disorder i mean of course people know that because they remember the big wars from that period at least from european history but many historians now think that uh, this was due to climate change uh, so it was a century of political turmoil uh, maybe because uh, uh, the climate had become uh, so unpredictable uh, and of course you know uh, with more limited technology, it was harder for uh, people of that time to deal with those challenges. But uh, in that case, cooling rather than warming. But so climate change or disruption to trade networks, either due to climate change or some other reason. So uh, mid 15th century, there is a shortage of precious metals, which means um, there isn't, uh, you know, they call it there aren't enough coins, and this really uh, affects trade. Um, or something like, you know, Black Death or, you know, um, you know, some kind of pandemic uh, disrupting, you know, dynastic uh, succession. Uh, in that particular world, that's a big problem. Um, uh, so, so things like that, that affect not just one actor, but, uh, you know, uh, many actors in the order simultaneously. And of course, you know, the effect may be different from locality to locality, but uh, the common denominator seems to be everybody um, stops engaging with others, stops looking outward, competing, or trying to take over the world, whatever is the expectation in that order, um, and turns inward. And I think this is what really uh, causes orders to uh, fall apart. Um, and then if that period of disengagement disorder turning turning inward lasts a long time, uh, I think then when re- order is reconstituted, then it's it doesn't replicate the expectations and norms of the previous order, but new actors have create 
entirely different uh, orders with new institutions and expectations. But that list of structural dynamics, climate change, epidemics, demographic decline, monetary problems, sounds very much like what Adam Tooze calls the polycrisis, which we're living through at the moment. Do you, do you think that that is the biggest threat to the current order, that countries kind of turn inwards as a result of those things and that you see a sort of fragmentation and a breaking down? I think so. Uh, I think so. I mean, I mean that, that people may say it's, you know, uh, everybody needs to take care of their own problems, you know, so, uh, so, so what? And I guess <laughs> there is something to be said about that. Uh, but it's a problem from the perspective of international order or world order. Uh, you know, it's only uh, order, <laughs> international order exists as long as, you know, we believe it exists and <laughs> engage with it and others. So if there is, you know, severe uh, um, fraying of the material and social ties that keep it together, then yes, uh, that's, that means we are in a period of, you know, disorder, I think, in addition to a period of maybe structural crisis. And then I think, you know, what's to come would depend on how long that period lasted. So it may be that it's only a couple decades and then we have a new order with new dominant players and the rules are have been modified but more or less the same or we could have what happened in you know the 17th century uh, almost a century of disorder and then uh, essentially all order became regionalized and then it wasn't re- reconstituted as a global or a world order until you know 18th 19th century of course you know technology and um, greater numbers of people etc so things happen much faster now so it's not exactly you know a one-on-one parallel but i think there are some lessons there that we should think about so two decades of disorder um uh in the 21st century could be like two centuries of disorder in the in the middle ages yeah maybe <laughs> and what do you think do you think that we are do you think that we are potentially going through a kind of a uh, real kind of uh change of from one order to another or and the, the and a period of, of decline or do you think that that is kind of overwrought and that um the conflict between or competition between china and america could actually end up strengthening the order in the way that you described at the beginning I mean, it's it's a question that we cannot answer except <laughs> uh, in hindsight. But <laughs> yes, but I do think there is a chance. Uh, there is a chance that we are in a period of uh, disorder and that we will remain there because of. Uh, I mean, the structural pressures are, you know, as as you were saying, it's a poly crisis. It's not just one thing. So uh, I think it depends on to some extent how well we're able to meet those pressures because as i said like i mean we have more agency now <laughs> than our counterparts uh, in history just we're able to deal with these types of issues better one would hope so, but i think i mean the the problem is the the articulation of any kind of i think positive vision or uh any kind of future-oriented i mean whether we're talking about domestic politics or international politics it seems those who have the willingness to do something, usually they want to hold on to what was rather than, I mean, I don't see many people making arguments, like new arguments. Uh, so that's that also suggests to me that we're in a period of disorder. You know, what's that? The new new has not been born yet, you know, so that's, yeah. <laughs> the Gramscian, um, uh, the, it's the, the interregnum where the, the old can't die 
the, the, the new the old is the new can't be born and where does war fit into it because obviously one of the ways that orders have been cemented in the past has been through war it does the fact that we have nuclear weapons now and that you can't really imagine uh, a kind of war between great powers mean that is that one of the reasons why disorder is more part of our lives i don't think i mean i don't think so i think historically you know i mean at least to the world orders that i i studied you know <laughs> they are created by conquest but that was the norms and expectations of that world i think modern international order has been you know if, if i say this of course critical scholars will object <laughs> i don't mean to say there isn't you know violence or conquest in the modern international order but that there is also uh, you know, one of the deep norms is also, you know, negotiation and <laughs> institution building, etc. So I don't think it requires uh, order creation uh, in our ecumeny with the deep norms that we have. That it doesn't necessarily require war, like in 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 the historic sense. You know, it requires certainly maybe coercion and uh, pressures, etc. But uh, so. Yes, I mean, we, we have nuclear weapons, so there's still the possibility of war. We don't have necessarily a hot war between great powers, but I don't think that by itself is the reason for uh, disorder. Yeah. Okay, well, you're, you're lucky uh, in that you're dealing in centuries, so it will be hard for either of us to know whether your predictions are, are right. But I think it um, it's a very interesting way of thinking about where we're at at the moment, and also particularly this idea that the, the end of order is more likely to come from countries looking inwards and losing a vision for the world rather than um, one great power taking over from another, I think is a very uh, helpful and useful way of, um, of, uh, of rethinking the debate that many people are having about the global order at the moment. Um, what uh, we, we have one thing left to do on the podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. But maybe before we do that, I can ask you a kind of uh, question about your work. What, what, so before the West was your last book. What's your next book going to be about? Well, I'm, uh, there are two things I'm working on. One is this question of disorder and how is order reconstituted from disorder. Uh, so I have a, a British Academy grant to study that together with global collaborators. So I assume <laughs> there will be a book from that. But I'm also working on this concept of uh, sovereignty and centralization and how it, it is resisted. So I'd like to maybe write a trade book uh, dealing with that problem uh, and maybe not using those words. Uh, so that's what I'm thinking about these days. Great. Well, they will no doubt all appear on our bookshelf segment uh, in future uh, episodes of the podcast. But what's on your bookshelf at the moment, Aisha? One book that I want to recommend is linked to this sovereignty d- the debate. It's a book called Sacred Kingship in World History, an uh, edited book uh, that deals with different kinds of sacred kingship throughout history also you know what we call maybe populism or strongman it also i think you know falls into that basket so uh maybe readers uh i mean it's an academic book but also very interesting for people who want to think about how power is legitimized and has been legitimized uh, across the ages so that's what i would recommend great fantastic um We'll put up links to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu and in the show notes of this podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours and by um, subscribing to future episodes on whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on. And while you're there, it would be wonderful if you could give us a 
positive review and a five-star rating because that will help bring other people to the podcast as well. But for now, from Aisha Zarakol and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Kiara Brika and the editor of this episode is Mireya Baro-Sarats. 